I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are pleased to welcome in Professor Mikhail Troitsky to discuss the state of the Russian war in Ukraine, as well as the reverberations the war has had on international politics. Since this is your first time we've had you on the podcast, let's start with a little bit about you and your academic and professional background. We are curious what set you on this pathway towards becoming a professor and studying this area of work. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure being here, and I'm honored to be invited as a guest to your uh, podcast. Yeah, let's start uh, with a little bit uh, of my um, academic background, and I think we should start from the very beginning. Uh, I was starting elementary school when uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, came to power in the Soviet Union, and started uh, his perestroika and came up with his new political thinking. So my formative years very much coincided with perestroika and new political thinking in, uh, in Soviet foreign relations. And so both of those assumptions were built on, uh, both of those um, policies were built on the assumptions of huge benefit from international collaboration and economic interdependence. Uh, do away with militarism, stop uh, arms races, and you will reap a huge peace dividend. So I somehow came out of age when that was happening, and so I internalized uh, this type of thinking, which became part of my identity. And uh, I wanted to learn languages and study politics, especially international politics and economics, uh, in order to take part in this dynamic Uh, of Russia finally becoming a full-fledged member of the international community and sky was supposed to be the limit here. Uh, So I knew I wanted to uh, practice international relations but I also had uh, um, significant interest in matters of uh, hard science like mathematics and, and physics so I did three semesters of serious maths and physics uh, at St. Petersburg uh, University while also uh, studying uh, towards a degree in international relations. And I ended up just getting a certificate in in physics and maths and uh, making international politics uh, uh, my major with French being my first foreign language and English my second. Uh, foreign language, and uh, I have very much enjoyed that uh, since I um, graduated, and I think I've, uh, so far, I've had a very um, rewarding uh, and and, uh, nice career in many ways. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and how it informed your future work? yeah, uh, so I um, was uh, towards the end of the 1990s uh, and early in the new millennium when I started uh, graduate school, school and working on my dissertation, I was fascinated uh, 
um, with the way the United States reinvented its uh, uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis European uh, um, allies and the transatlantic alliance as such after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of the Cold War. So the disappearance of the main adversary uh, turned out to be a problem and the alliance uh, required an adapted uh, rationale and maybe even um, a new mission, at least ideas for a new mission. Uh, so how the United States reshaped its policy vis-a-vis -vis its European allies without overplaying its hand and resorting to coercion was very interesting to analyze. Uh, and uh, there, of course, were crises in transatlantic relations throughout the 1990s and early in the new millennium, think in terms of Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, and maybe even uh, China, but the way the Allies would eventually find um, common ground and even consensus without much arm twisting was very, very um, interesting and instructive and could be used as a lesson, by the way, for uh, by, by many other would-be leaders of international alliances. So back then, uh, about uh, two decades ago, I thought I'd apply some IR theory to look at um, how it all happened and conceptualize the key factor of the United States and its allies reinventing uh, their their transatlantic uh, partnership. And uh, once I was done with that dissertation, the more I looked at international politics uh, in Eurasia, uh, the more I thought uh, players like Russia and, and even China could learn important lessons uh, as to how you can lead your desired alliance uh, by coming up with new ideas uh, for missions and adapting uh, those ideas and missions uh, in such a way uh, as to correspond to the interests of those whom you want to rally and, uh, and uh, unite. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, that, that I think uh, was the source of my interest and I think uh, my, uh, the, the, the line of research that I pursued in my dissertation ended up uh, playing out well for, uh, for my ability to um, analyze uh, international politics in the two uh, decades uh, that, uh, that followed. It was clear, uh, for example, um, that uh, you paint uh, yourself into a corner if you develop an identity that is uh, uh, incompatible with other players' uh, interests and, and aspirations. And after some time, you cannot really reassure your partners and rivals alike uh, if you premise your identity on some form of exceptionalism or opposition to the dominant trends. So that is what you want to avoid. And I think Russia uh, ended up falling into that trap when it framed its foreign policy course as opposition to the United States uh, and its allies and the determination to become a leader of the group of discontents of the states that were supposed to somehow stand up to U.S. influence. And the problem was that uh, not everyone was, uh, was willing to do that, including uh, uh, many of uh, the uh, post-Soviet republics around Russia. And so Russia had to resort to um, increasing um, 
coercion in order to have its way in relations with its uh, with its uh, partners that couldn't of course uh, in any way uh, you know, distance themselves from Russia as neighbors too much but at the at the same time they were not willing to buy into Russia's um, um, stepped-up narrative of, um, of um, opposing Russian power to that of, of the West. Uh, and that um, sort of came to a head uh, with the onset of, of Russia's war against uh, Ukraine. And let, yeah, let's move right into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is now entering year two. And let's also talk about it in the context of your fall course, Russian foreign policy since 1991, the road to war in Vienna. Mm, yeah. Okay. Thank you for raising uh, the um, the course that um, I'm about to teach uh, in the fall uh, 2023 semester. So the idea behind the course, uh, uh, tentatively titled Russian Foreign Policy since 1991, uh, the road to war and beyond, the idea behind it is really to reverse engineer Russian foreign policy making uh, and uh, the way the Russian foreign policy apparatus worked over the post-Cold War years. So. Uh, we now have the benefit of knowing uh, where um, you know, Russia ended up being uh, by February 2022 when, when it started uh, its um, invasion. And uh, uh, we also know that there were different schools of thought as to what was indeed driving Russian foreign policy during different periods uh, uh, post-Cold War and as to where Russia was eventually headed. Uh, so we now have the benefit of being able to test those uh, hypotheses against our hard knowledge of what uh, actually happened, of the sort of logical outcome of Russia's path uh, towards whatever it was headed over the 90s and the two decades and the new millennium. Uh, so we are going to just study those schools of thought and, uh, and uh, the way they conceptualize motive forces uh, um, in, behind Russian foreign policy, looking at you know, ideas and bureaucratic politics and certainly personalities and balance of power considerations and so forth. Again, uh, knowing uh, where it all uh, came eventually, and we are then going to disprove some hypotheses and maybe uh, maybe uh, benefit from being able to confirm some other hypotheses. That is going to give us uh, a very very nice toolkit uh, going forward if we are to analyze um, any country's uh, foreign policy. We now know what we should have been paying uh, most of our attention to over the, um, the post-Cold War years as we were analyzing um, Russia and its foreign policy. And uh, unfortunately, the worst expectations that I never used to share uh, ended up being proven right. So whether that was inevitable is a different matter. But, uh, but we, we still know the outcome and can play with the uh, data against that, um, that known um, outcome, thereby um, just confirming or disproving 
some of the hypotheses, which is a very interesting exercise, and I call on um, everyone interested uh, to join our class uh, this coming fall. So that perspective is really interesting. So as a longtime scholar of Russian foreign policy who had these kind of preconceptions before the war in Ukraine on what Russian's foreign policy direction was, were you surprised by the invasion of Ukraine? And why was there so much uncertainty in the West? And should we have expected the invasion all along? Well, I, I think at some point uh, towards the end of 2021, it became clear that uh, the, the determination to launch a war against Ukraine was indeed there at the top ranks of the Russian government. Um, that said, of course, uh, many, including myself, believe that the threshold between negotiations, between political coercion, and uh, some cursive negotiation on one hand and uh, an overt use of force is quite high. So that uh, it, it, it should take a whole um, you know, new decision. It, 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 use of force uh, uh, would come as a result of a decision that uh, uh, is not trivial, that it would be quite difficult to make. Uh, and I think it was indeed difficult uh, to make. Uh, however, as far as I understand from the information that is now available in the public domain, the West, or at least the United States, had had quite accurate information about the actual intentions and the strength of Russia's uh, intentions uh, to uh, use force uh, against Ukraine for at least several months in the uh, in the run-up uh, to the war. So, uh, uh, to just uh, cut to the chase, I was indeed surprised by the invasion, uh, although uh, the likelihood, the, my, my assessment of its likelihood was indeed uh, going up with um, ultimatums being presented uh, uh, to the West uh, at the end of uh, 2021 and certainly of the bellicose rhetoric and then of the whole symbolism that, that surrounded uh, the, the preparations for a, a putative campaign um, against, um, against Ukraine. When you saw all these uh, Z signs, whatever you made of them, uh, you would think that, uh, that the preparation has really hit its final stages as long as people are thinking of even um, such details as, uh, as symbols uh, behind the, the campaign. So uh, when I saw those symbols, I thought it's, it's really uh, it's getting tragically serious. And so at the beginning of the war, um, there was expectations that Putin's goal was to conquer the entire nation of Ukraine. What uh, do you think the endgame was in his mind when he launched the war, and has that changed? Well, I think it has become uh, uh, common knowledge that apparently uh, Putin was uh, planning on capturing Ukrainian leadership and maybe just um, seizing uh, Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, uh, over the uh, first days of the war, and then uh, seeing how much of Ukraine would actually fall into Russia's lap. Um, given the numbers of, uh, of Ukrainians that uh, apparently were 
quite opportunistic and could have possibly uh, and could have possibly favored uh, living uh, together with Russia or under Russia. Uh, and apparently that uh, uh, never uh, never happened. And then uh, Russia's, uh, Putin's plans uh, began to change and they are still changing as we speak. Um, you, you just heard uh, uh, two major public uh, speeches by Putin uh, in which many people expected he would um, advocate or even order a new kind of campaign, a new offensive uh, against Ukraine or put the country on the war footing, which he never did. And uh, that testifies to the fact that uh, his ideas for uh, an endgame uh, are evolving um, all the time. And uh, he may even be now considering some kind of a defensive posture um, just you know, calling whatever happens next a victory and, and trying to exit this conflict that would of course put an enormous strain on Russia's uh, political uh, regime. Uh, but again, uh, it might be that at this point cutting losses and trying to hold on to what Russia has been able to see so far uh, is considered to be a viable strategy or we might well see another uh, push to capture more of, um, uh, of Ukraine and uh, I think uh, it's a very unrewarding task to make those prognostications because it essentially depends on the thinking of, of, one, uh, of one person uh, as long as I don't think there are influential factions within the Russian uh, ruling class uh, who would advocate uh, continued uh, open-ended war um, as long as um, everyone's resources are getting quickly um, depleted and the Russian society um, has no strong feelings, appears not to have any strong feelings uh, to just um, you know support the war when, uh, when they have skin in the game. Uh, not just verbally, but with uh, with their skin in the game. So, um, again, no uh, no good uh, forecasts about uh, the actual end game. Uh, the bottom line being that it uh, has been evolving from very ambitious goals, extremely ambitious goals, as we just discussed uh, at uh, at the during the first days of the war, and and maybe the initial plans to very limited aims that appear to be set uh, by the Russian leadership. So in the early hours of Monday, February 20th, President Biden rode a train from Poland into Kyiv, marking his first trip to Ukraine since the start of the conflict a year ago. Can you discuss the strategic decision behind the president's visit and the implications? Yeah, I think uh, it means that uh, Biden and his administration are going all in uh, in terms of their um, support pledge uh, to Ukraine. So it would be difficult for the Biden administration now uh, to back out of uh, supporting Ukraine as much as it takes and actually ensuring that uh, Ukraine doesn't suffer major defeats uh, on the battlefield. Uh, and of course that was a very bold move. Everyone uh, even uh, Biden's uh, political adversaries have been giving him credit for this uh, uh, 
for this very daring uh, move uh, to just uh, come visit uh, a war zone uh, without 100% uh, guarantee of uh, protection. So that was a, really a very risky enterprise that I think uh, raised uh, Biden's profile uh, domestically and certainly in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe. So. Uh, so I think uh, the, the railing power of that move uh, uh, in Eastern Europe was quite strong. And so that even some West European skeptics in Germany and, the Fr and in France had to uh, jump on that bandwagon in order not to, to just be left uh, uh, behind by the momentum. Uh, whereby apparently everyone believes that the West must ensure Ukraine's uh, victory uh, in the war. So that was a, that was a very uh, powerful move, uh, but also uh, a strong a strong bid uh, that um, the United States will need to um, uh, to live up to. And they expect, so it set expectations very high. And so the question is now about uh, living up to those um, expectations uh, despite uh, weariness and attrition and uh, potentially adverse trends uh, in the public opinion uh, in the United States and, and potentially in Europe. But again, uh, of course, Biden uh, uh, won uh, many, much, much praise uh, for his uh, very unprecedented uh, bold uh, uh, move uh, in support of Ukraine. And so in other recent news, President Putin has announced that his country will no longer be complying with the New START Treaty, which was the most recent nuclear arms reductions treaty between the two nations. Can you discuss the implications of this move? Yeah, well, the implications uh, is that all eyes have now been dotted in terms of uh, arms control on the global scale um, coming to almost a complete halt. So most of global arms control hinged on U.S.-Russian bilateral agreements and their strategic uh, arms uh, reduction treaties, uh, not just the new START, but also uh, START one that uh, was uh, implemented by the time uh, the new START was, uh, was signed. Uh, all those treaties uh, did constitute a cornerstone in the uh, global efforts to build uh, um, confidence and uh, uh, and limit uh, uh, arms races and reduce the potential for arms races on the global scale. So now the United States and Russia uh, have uh, failed and we can discuss whose fault that was. Apparently Russia has much more blame to take for uh, just uh, thwarting and tanking all the edifice of uh, the arms control um, agreements that existed between Moscow and Washington. But anyway, uh, those two sides failed to show the way, so to say. They just uh, ended up uh, putting their parochial interest first. Uh, and again, of course, that was much about uh, Russia uh, uh, 
somehow uh, being in breach of the INF treaty and, and then uh, and then uh, conditioning of course the, um, the the fate of the new start treaty on the overall political dynamic in US Russia relations uh, which uh, at this time is, is very very poor to put it mildly so uh, again, those two countries are failing the world in terms of uh, of leading the way towards more confidence and uh, and less uh, uh, arms expenditure, and um, you know potentially reaping the peace benef benefit that Gorbachev and Reagan and George H. W. Bush were so good at uh, um, at, at doing. Uh, and again, in the developing world, uh, uh, opinions differ as to whether Russia has to take all the blame for its attack against Ukraine. So many people out there would, would look at that and say, well, um, now um, no holds are barred and uh, why don't we go ahead and, um, and, and, and so we have the moral right to arm ourselves and, and say our neighbors present pose significant threats to us so we should uh, really be intransigent we shouldn't look for agreements with them we shouldn't look to uh, actually um, damage potential fallout from our conflict we should just go ahead and uh, prevent our potential adversaries from doing us um, any harm. Um, yeah, but uh, but again, uh, when it comes to U.S.-Russia uh, 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 strategic equation, so to say, uh, it might be that uh, uh, with the passage of time, this uh, this new arms race, uh, uh, possibly more uh, qualitative than quantitative. Because there's uh, already a uh, huge uh, overkill uh, that both sides possess. So there's no need in uh, increasing the numbers of warheads. But some new technologies that uh, would probably be, uh, be limited in their development, that probably uh, the sides wouldn't even venture into researching and trying to deploy, will now be be deployed but again this is a very long-term prospect uh, uh, whereas the current uh, dynamic in u.s russia relations the one that has to do with russia's war against ukraine uh, is uh, is uh, is very um, it's hopefully going to be quite short-lived so the crisis cannot last for for too long uh, so that the two sides uh, and at least um, you know, hopefully, hopefully Russia will be able to change course and maybe, uh, you know, come back to some of those uh, um, negotiations and, and perhaps um, agreements as well. Although it's going to be very hard to pull off any new arms control agreements uh, between the, the two nuclear um, uh, superpowers. And of course, uh, all bets are off now as to where Russia is, is headed with all its uh, nuclear potential um, as the war against Ukraine enters its, um, its uh, second year. But my bottom line would be that for now, the end of the new start, uh, the apparent end of the new start, uh, is more of a red herring, uh, given the more important dynamic uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine and some risks uh, present in U.S.-Russian strategic uh, relationship with all that discussion about uh, you know, the nuclear factor in the current con context. So the uh, absence of even this last uh, major 
uh, or the demise of even this last major um, nuclear arms control treaty uh, it would not have an immediate effect on the key dynamic that is driving much of the global politics at this moment. There has been some greater discussion of China's support of Russia, trending towards potentially China, which had been staying in terms of just non-lethal support, introducing some lethal support in some capacity. Can you discuss how this could potentially escalate the conflict? I think China is playing a, a, an intricate game right now. So apparently uh, China's position is evolving towards trying to mediate an end uh, uh, to the war and they are talking about uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty of all the stakeholders which uh, certainly means restoration of Ukraine's uh, internationally recognized uh, borders. Then China also talks about uh, observing legitimate security interests of the parties involved which, uh, which potentially might mean, um, uh, you know, paying tribute to some of what Russia said uh, was its uh, uh, concerns uh, before it started its war against Ukraine. Who knows? But my perception of the dynamic uh, behind uh, uh, China's position is that, is that China now wants to play. Uh, a more active role as opposed to just staying on the sidelines and calling everyone uh, to end the armed hostilities as China used to to do uh, for this whole year uh, that the war uh, was uh, going on. Now China is, uh, is trying to play more uh, a more active role and it certainly does have a pull here so China's position uh, uh, is of huge importance to uh, to Moscow and China has got um, enough leverage. Um, whether China e is going to become and China's mediation efforts uh, or any peace plans uh, are going to become a major factor in the further developments that we are going to see uh, you know, in the war and um, around, you know, Russia's relations with uh, with the West and, and others, I am not sure. Uh, I think um, I think um, you know the, the Russian uh, side can still dismiss uh, China's initiatives, uh, much as it uh, dismissed uh, Turkey's attempts at uh, mediation and press on with the war effort, for example, or just you know retrench and try to protect uh, Russia's territorial um, seizures uh, uh, while China uh, would be calling for restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity. Uh, but if, um, you know, if uh, the, the political uh, sort of constellation of forces in Russia is, is such that uh, the powers to be in Russia, uh, Putin or someone else, uh, think uh, that uh, the war should be stopped at all costs uh, because it's unsustainable for Russia, then taking China up on its uh, peace plans uh, may be one uh, potentially last uh, chance uh, for, for Russia uh, to kind of limit the damage that it inflicted upon itself uh, in this uh, in this horrific war. Uh, 
but again, for for the time being, I wouldn't uh, uh, you know put much faith um, and and hope uh, in China's uh, mediation effort. Uh, although, again, it might uh, play out. Uh, uh, to, uh, in such a way that it has uh, impact on, on Russian war plans. And who knows, maybe, you know, Putin's lack of uh, bellicosity in his uh, recent two uh, public uh, speeches uh, was, uh, in part, a result of uh, China's changing view and China's uh, uh, lack of willingness to uh, throw its weight behind um, Russia, no matter what. So early on in this conflict, the Biden administration, the two ways that they planned on supporting Ukraine was through providing non-human military support and funding, and as well as imposing some strict sanctions on the Russian economy. But there's some reporting, which at the time was presented as having a severe cost and it was going to devastate the economy. But there's some reporting that the Russian economy hasn't felt those severe costs and that life is relatively normal inside Russia. So could you discuss internally what the costs of the sanctions have been on the Russian domestic economy? Yeah, I think uh, to put it briefly, I think it's... uh too early uh, to call the, the damage that uh, has been done to the Russian economy. I, I think it, uh, the, the, the greatest damage uh, has been done in terms of expectations of uh, Russia's uh, uh, potential benefits from, again, economic interdependence and interactions with whatever technological leaders there are uh, these days um, around the globe, mainly Western economies and and their corporations. So all those ties have now been cut. uh, And uh, that doesn't bode well for the longer term prospects. Uh, But of course, many brands are uh, are now unavailable on the Russian market and the uh, uh, the car imports are now virtually limited to I think uh, Chinese uh, cars uh, and um, otherwise um, it's it's hard to say that uh, the um, fallout of those sanctions uh, has been uh, catastrophic uh, so far. There's a debate uh, uh, about whether the Russian economy uh, shrank by three or four or maybe two and a half percent, which is not um, as significant uh, as uh, the impact uh, made by the human losses in the war, by uh, you know the casualties uh, that you know the Russian society sees are being uh, are, are happening in that war. Uh, but of course, the the understanding of the limits that the sanctions uh, have imposed, the very severe limits uh, on Russia's uh, future path to economic uh, development, uh, not speaking about any prosperity. Uh, are going to become evident very soon, and they they have already been evident to uh, many uh, players in Russia. So how, overall, how you can pivot away from the West and its markets and its technologies uh, 
uh, is not quite clear, although, of course, you can live without uh, all those uh, goods and services and technologies uh, uh, for uh, quite a while, as long as there's a way out uh, for those in Russia who just do not want to absorb that uh, damage or who, um, who disagree. So again, uh, the bottom line here that the damage uh, has not yet been you know, catastrophic, uh, but uh, apparently uh, the expectations have been uh, greatly reduced and the business activity uh, has also shrunk uh, and uh, it's, it's certainly not going to rebound anytime soon. Can you also discuss on the Ukrainian side the process so far of Ukraine is rebuilding after the initial offenses and the current refugee situation for Ukraine? Yeah, well, the, the, the war has become a real uh, tragedy uh, for Ukraine. I'm not in the position to um, assess uh, the damage, but it's, it's clearly vast. And Ukraine will need a massive uh, rebuilding effort. And, uh, you know, even demining of the war zone uh, that's going to start uh, when the war ends, after the war ends, is... Uh, is will have to be uh, massive and it will likely take years uh, with uh, with vast territories uh, uh, that are currently in the war zone and we even don't know how many territories are going to become uh, war zone in in the next uh, uh, several months so all those territories will need uh, not just massive reconstruction but uh, but just you know some basic demining and demilitarization uh, that is uh, that is an immense uh, um, project to to undertake of course and the and the refugee situation uh, is of course uh, seems of course to be um, uh, uh, very bad with uh, many uh, women and children mostly living. Ukraine, uh, how many of them are going to come back? Uh, likely um, a lot of uh, Ukrainians who had to flee the war zone uh, will come back, uh, but the, uh, but the, the damage uh, that kind of uh, flight uh, is, uh, is uh, 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 making uh, is inflicting on Ukraine's uh, labor resources is equally uh, vast and um, you can only be sorry and angry um, uh, with the with the criminal decision to launch that war against um, um, against a state and inflicting all that uh, human uh, human tragedy so uh, for sure, Russia, but but, but uh, certainly also Ukraine are in for very very uh, hard years of um, economic uh, rebuilding, and if humanitarian uh, catastrophe is avoided uh, during and even post-war uh, in Russia and Ukraine, uh, then we'll will already be um, be lucky, and uh, we we should start from there. Uh, trying to uh, rebuild uh, Ukraine uh, and possibly uh, also Russia if there's an opportunity. So here in the U.S. we have students who are interested in learning more about Russia, but scholars and students can't go into Russia right now. What are the implications for students and scholars outside of Russia who want to study Russia? 
Uh, well, I've spent years trying to internationalize uh, Russian uh, education and research, and uh, for now, clearly, there's uh, uh, no way a U.S. Uh, scholar or a student can uh, come to Russia to conduct research or spend a semester or a few months uh, studying at Russian university, that would be a, a risky course to pursue, uh, even if we don't uh, mention the, um, the restrictions um, placed by Western governments on um, interaction uh, with, uh, with Russia. Uh, so, uh, and a few universities uh, within Russia still have uh, a very um, a very uh, good uh, base to actually resume uh, accepting uh, their, um, you know, international visitors uh, at some point uh, if, you know, the, the situation doesn't deteriorate too much uh, so that uh, this uh, base of internationalization is uh, completely destroyed beyond uh, restoration. But my hope is uh, that at some point uh, the opportunities will be there and that at least some uh, inflow of uh, visiting students and perhaps even faculty uh, will, um, will, will resume. Um, but that again will depend on, on uh, Russia just opening up for that kind of activity. Uh, so we, we need to be back, uh, Russia needs to be back um, on the uh, international education market. But that will come well after uh, other uh, more pressing issues uh, are sorted out. Last one, what haven't we talked about that we should? Any areas of this discussion that you want to make sure that we hit on? Yeah, I think we have now covered uh, uh, it all. Uh, well, Churchill once said uh, that we should never waste a good crisis. Uh, and of course, he meant uh, uh, the politicians, practitioners who get the chance to overhaul their policies and build something from scratch uh, post-crisis uh, or during the crisis. But this recommendation uh, also applies to scholars who should study every crisis from every possible angle so that their findings uh, help to avoid such crises in the future. Uh, so rather than saying it was all predetermined uh, and that some unshakable laws of international politics led to this crisis, we should look for ways to avert the constellation of forces and factors that brought this crisis about, while of course acknowledging the, um, uh, the, um, the responsibility uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Russia and its government in launching this, uh, this war. So we, we, anyway, we should use the experience available from, um, from this uh, uh, tragic uh, situation uh, to uh, make sure it um, doesn't um, happen again in the future, not just in Europe or Eurasia, but uh, also elsewhere in the world. So you came to Madison from Moscow in December. What are your first impressions of the city and the university? And have you and your family found any favorite restaurants or explored any wintry outdoor activities? Yeah, we have uh, thoroughly liked uh, medicine, a very uh, the, 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 a city, um, 
which has the, the right size uh, for men uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, that uh, has been uh, very hospitable and that provides uh, plenty of opportunities for certainly professional development here at uh, the university but also for recreation and sports. Uh, yeah, so we have been doing some uh, um, cross-country skiing before it started melting mm -hmm. and uh, some um, ice skating um, as well we still have to explore um, local restaurants beyond um, you know the, the, sort of the, the business lunch uh, uh, places um, so we have uh, still a lot to um, uh, to do here, but again, our first impressions have been very positive, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be here and discuss uh, all of those pressing issues on um, our podcast that uh, that uh, um, may not uh, be uh, possible elsewhere. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.